All right, y'all. Welcome to the Uncensored Wizard. This is going to be an interesting episode. There's been a lot that has happened in the um, world of religion and culture this week. Uh, well, last couple of weeks. I've been sick, so some of the stuff is from a week ago when I couldn't record anything, but I want to talk about it now. Um, so everything from the Grammys to revival that is spreading. Um, some of you are familiar. You might have heard about the revival in Asbury um, University in Kentucky. There's also revivals that are breaking out at other college campuses and also at churches all across the country are claiming that they're experiencing renewal and revival. And so it's a lot to talk about and a lot that intersects with um, the culture and religion, which is a big part of this podcast but also a lot of it just resonates with me personally. I, I have uh, a lot of thoughts about this, as does um, uh, a lot of other people, it, it appears. been a lot of criticism, a lot of cynicism, a lot of opinions about all these things that, that have been going on. So, you know, I don't know. I've got lots of lots of notes I've written over here that, you know, I, I, I'm going to try to work through. I, I have several times kind of went through and edited and re-edited these notes and what I want to say, but, um, but at the end of the day, there, there is kind of a core message I want, I want to get out on this podcast. And that core message really begins with, uh, with my ministry and, and how it started out. But before I get started, I got to get a little sip of this. Now, this is not idea juice this, this, uh, evening. This is actually energy juice, also known as Java or, cafe in my world's best wizard cup so let me get a sip of that and uh, i'm going to talk to you for a few minutes about this revival stuff and some sam smith stuff and some church of god stuff and uh, we're going to going to have a good time but uh cheers let's do this ah that's good that's good so on New Year's Eve in 1998, at the age of 17 years old, I preached my first sermon. And the text for that sermon was Luke 22, uh, starting at verse 47. I want to read that text to you real quick. This is the story. Many of you are familiar with this story. This is the story of Jesus being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane right before his crucifixion. And his homeboy, Peter... Uh, had some feelings about Jesus getting arrested and Peter pulls out a sword, starts trying to fight people, ends up cutting an ear off while he was still speaking. A crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the 12 was leading. Then he approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? When Jesus followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. This was my, this was my text for my very first sermon, 1998, New Year's Eve. It was one of those, you know, New Year's Midnight Eve services that we do. We have like a bunch of different preachers. I'm not sure if I preached right before midnight or right after. I'm pretty sure it was right before, you know, they saved the, the, the midnight sermon for the main attraction, which was probably the pastor or the evangelist at that time. So that was my main text, was the cutting of Malchus's ear off. His name is Malchus, 
We learned that in the Gospel of John. Uh, but I cross-referenced that with Hebrews 4.12. Remember, I'm 17 years old, so some of this isn't the greatest hermeneutic, but uh, at the, but I actually don't think I did a huge injustice to biblical theology. I'll let you be the judge of that. But I cross-referenced it with Hebrews 4.12, which says, For the word of the Lord is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. My message was simple that night, uh, and it's what God had put on my heart. And uh, you know, I still have a tape of this sermon. I sound like a little kid in it. I sound like like a twelve year old boy, but I'm seventeen. Um, I actually thought about putting that clip up in the podcast. I'm going to spare you that. But my message that night was simple. We must be careful how we use the Bible. This is my message. We must be careful how we use the Bible because it's the Word of God. And Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And if we use the Bible, the sword of the Spirit, with the wrong spirit, we might cut the ears of unbelievers off, which is not the way of Christ. This was my sermon. Simple. Don't cut the ears of unbelievers off. Don't use the Bible to cut other people's ears off. I went on to say in that sermon that, you know, Jesus Christ came so that we might hear. Jesus actually says this himself in Matthew 11, verse 15. He says, let he who has an ear hear. And then seven times in the book of Revelation, which is the most common use of this phrase, and you're probably familiar with it. Uh, seven times in the book of Revelation, Christ says, let he who has an ear hear what the Spirit says. I was reflecting this week, you know, thinking about this sermon, and not just this week, I've been thinking about this for a minute, actually. I, I ran across this recording of my sermon a few years ago, and then recently I saw it again. I didn't listen to it, I, I, but I just a couple of weeks ago I saw it in a in a basket because we were moving some things around and I remember this sermon and I was thinking to myself how that that sermon really set the tone for my ministry for the next 20 years it it was not just a one off that sermon really is my theology of ministry now I've written theology of ministry papers in seminary and in bible college some other things surfaced in that I'm going to talk about that in just a minute but for 20 years, that was, that was kind of the theme of my ministry. My goal as a Christian and minister was to make a way for people to experience Christ, to have a mystical, life-changing experience with God. That's what I wanted people to have. That, that's, what, that's why I did what I did, right? That was the motivation because I had had that experience. You know, my experience um, in church i had a lot of mystical experiences and i know i know that some people i feel like are more prone to these type of experiences than other people maybe there's a god gene that may be a good podcast to do in the future i tend to think that the research in the area of the god gene is some really phenomenal research um i've known people who have really wanted to have mystical experiences and weren't able to or not to the degree that some other people had but for me I had had some pretty mystical experiences. I had confronted Christ um, in, in some pretty life 
changing, transformative ways. God changed my life at the age of 17. I have no doubt about that. I have doubted it throughout my life at various times, even in my deconstruction. I wondered what that experience was all about, but the experience never left. It's like people would ask me sometimes, because I have so many disagreements with the Pentecostal church, would I remain Pentecostal? And my answer has always been, I can't not be Pentecostal. I've experienced too much, right? I've experienced too much to not be Pentecostal. And so for 20 years of ministry, my goal was to what was to make space for people to experience the divine, supernatural, mystical presence of God. And that's why I stayed in the Pentecostal church for so long. Now, man, that's great coffee. Now that that desire on my behalf as kind of the MO of my ministry um, left me with with this guiding rhetorical question. How could I make a way for people to experience the divine if I use the Bible, one of the most accessible portals, portals to the divine? Now, I no longer believe the Bible is the word of God in the same way that Jesus is the word of God. I think that in John, when it talks about the word of God, it's talking about Christ, not about the Holy Scriptures, the Logos, the spoken word of God, God incarnate in Christ. But the Bible is still one of the most accessible portals to the divine. There is something mystical and mysterious and spiritually empowering about the Bible. I do believe that. I have lots of other thoughts about the Bible, another podcast, another time. But for now, suffice to say that the scriptures are one of the most accessible portal portals for people to experience the divine, for people to be transported from this plane to higher thinking, to something that is transcendental and to something uh, that, that can lead to spiritual and transcendental experiences. So how could I make a way for people to experience the divine if I use the Bible, one of the most accessible portals to the divine, as a weapon to cut off their hearing? That was the guiding rhetorical question of my ministry is if I'm going to be responsible for preaching the Bible, teaching the Bible, using the Bible on a weekly basis, on a day to day basis, how can I do it in a way that has the right spirit so that I'm not cutting people's ears off so that they can't hear the spirit, but so that I'm making space for them so that if they have ears, they can hear what the spirit is saying. Now, clearly, if I was preaching this message at the age of 17, I had seen Bible preaching that cut the ears off rather than um, rather than open people up to the sound of the spirit. I'm going to adjust this camera. I get keep zooming in and out. It's, sorry about that. I, I don't know. It wants to zoom in on my hat, I think. But anyway, so by the age of 17, I had seen Bible preaching that had cut ears off rather then open them up to the sound of the Spirit. Now, on those seminary papers about a theology of ministry, um, a couple of years into my seminary work, I was uh, I took a course. I can't remember the name of the course. 
But in this course, we were required to write a paper fleshing out our theology of ministry. And we were encouraged by the instructor to kind of go back to the beginning, our earliest sort of experience uh, in ministry or with God that informed our theology of ministry. And so I went way back, you know, to when I was a young person in my rural Pentecostal church. And I, I reflected in this paper that I, I was, I don't know, I, I, didn't, I didn't evangelize people to get saved, but I did evangelize people to come to church. <laughs> like, I invited a lot of people to church um, when I really got into it as a teenager, like 17, six, 17 years old, 18. I really got into it. Uh, invited a lot of people to church. I used to go out and pick up some of my friends and bring them to church. Um, some of them got saved. Some of them didn't. Some of them had, you know, amazing experiences with God. Some of them listened to this podcast. Um, so you know what I'm talking about. But that was, you know, I evangelized getting people to church, not necessarily to get them to be saved. But because, and I wrote this in my paper, I brought people to church as a teenager because I wanted them to see and feel and experience God, right? Like I had Baptist friends and Methodist friends and they would come to my church and some of them experienced God in my church and they were like, why don't we have this at our church? And I'm not dissing those churches, by the way, but in my rural Pentecostal, uh, in my rural town, Troy, North Carolina, our Pentecostal church was offering people an experience with God that other churches weren't not saying they weren't offering an experience of God, but not like we were, we really, really engaged with the mystical sort of emotional, cathartic, visceral sort of experiences of God. And I had seen it. I had felt God as a child. I remember sometimes just being in church and, you know, it's funny because you would think it was a power of suggestion, but I actually in church don't remember a lot of people crying. But I would just we I would cry, man, when God would show up in church, I would just cry when I was 17 years old. I had like this supernatural mystical experience with God, this encounter with Christ that changed my life. And that's what I wanted people to experience. I wanted them to come to church because I believe if they came to church. They would feel God. And to me, that was like the coolest thing ever, because hell, like who wouldn't want to feel God? You know, we always wonder if God is real or not. Well, look, come feel him. And, you know, you can say all the things about like if it was just emotional catharsis or if it was mass hypnosis. And perhaps it was. Um, I've come to terms with that. Right. Like people go to get in hypnotic states all the time to experience something transcendental. So and I've addressed this in my podcast in earlier episodes. I don't think it's necessarily wrong. We probably need to be more honest about that as Christians and as Pentecostals and charismatics. What's what we're actually doing that we recognize there is this. Um, there is this dynamic of emotional catharsis. There is this dynamic of uh, crowd think. There is this dynamic of the power of suggestion because um, there just is like we can't just act like that doesn't happen. But I also don't think that that somehow negates the experiences that that literally transform lives and have transformed mine and many other people's lives. And whatever those things do, those chants or those dances or the music or the or the suggestions they move us into a space to experience um, God in ways that we just don't normally experience God, like um, in those sort of normal day-to-day -day sort of uh, type experiences. And so that was 
that was very important to me. You know, I was never super into getting people saved. It wasn't really my thing. Um, I don't know. I always felt like God would save people if they were supposed to get saved. I didn't really pressure people to get saved. I didn't really pressure people to believe like me. Um, I didn't like that. I never cared for apologetics. You know, I, I didn't feel like I needed to know it. I never studied it. I never used it. I thought it was silly. Uh, even from a young age, like, why would you defend God? Why would you need to prove God's existence? You know, we feel God. Uh, I was like, why do we need to prove God's existence? I, I, don't, I don't get it. And I know that that's not true for everyone. I, I don't want to take away from people's experience who maybe don't don't have that same sort of perspective but for me, I did, you know, and even like Billy Graham type services or, or Harvest Crusades, I took young people to them because churches expected me to as a youth pastor. Um, I just, they always made me cringe, you know, like the whole, I went to one the other night. It was a, it was like a Southern Baptist, a Southern Baptist, a Southern gospel concert. And at the end of it, they, they did the whole close your eyes and raise your hand type thing. And then, you know, then the past, the preacher was like, well, don't you can't be ashamed of Jesus. If you're ashamed of Jesus, you're not really saved. So everybody keep your eyes closed. And if you said that prayer, don't be ashamed. Raise your hand. But everybody keep your eye, eyes closed. I'm like, we should open our eyes. If they're not supposed to be ashamed, let's open our eyes and you know, give them a, an applause and, and affirm them for their prayer. But that whole thing is so weird to me. It's super cringe. Um, you know, then there was like hell houses or like, Hell's gates and heaven's flames, or or he, heaven's hell's flames and heaven's gates, or something like that. Um, but to me, all that stuff was never the point. I never got it. Like I just, it it never felt like the point of church. The point of church to me, the point of ministry, the point of doing what I was doing was to help people experience God. Even as a pastor in pastoral care, when I went to hospitals or when I visited the sick or whatever. I always felt like my job wasn't to give them answers, you know, for their situation or or, you know, to somehow make sense of it all. I was there to be the to be the presence of God in times when they didn't know where God was or how to experience God. That was the point was to be there and to be the presence of God. So for me, that's just that is what is that is what uh, uh, was important. So let's talk about <laughs> just that's going to make sense later. Hopefully, I don't know. We'll see how this thing goes. Uh so what happened this week? Well, we had the Grammys a couple of weeks ago, a couple of Sundays ago. Uh, and some of you may have heard about this. Some of you probably watched it. You heathens. I actually didn't watch it. I had to catch up later. Uh, I forgot the Grammys were on. Um, I was sick, too. Super sick. I, I I didn't get tested, but I'm pretty sure I had the big C, COVID. Um, but... Anyway, on the National Televised Grammy Award show, artist Sam Smith and Kim Petras, I think that's how you say her name, uh, created quite the controversy when they performed their song Unholy on the Grammys. By the way, the song Unholy came on the radio the day. It's a it's a bop. Like I jammed out to it. I had no idea what the lyrics were there were though. So I'm I'm that kind of music listener. Um, two things about me listening to music. I mainly listen for the music. Lyrics are secondary, and the things about lyrics, because I have ADHD, is I'll listen to a good lyric, and like if it's a good line, uh, my mind drifts off thinking about that lyric, and I miss the rest of them. So it takes me a few times to actually hear all the words in a song, and I don't even know why I feel like I need to give you that disclaimer. But um, I do like the song. Like, it's a decent-sounding bop, if you will. I think that's what the cool kids say. 
But anyway, they performed this song and they danced on a flaming stage. They looked like the devil. Uh, he was wearing like a hat with devil horns. They had these dancers around that looked like cult members. And, you know, Sam Smith tweeted about it and he was like, I don't know, it's going to go down or some shit. And then CBS, they added fuel to the fire when they tweeted back to Sam Smith right before he took the stage. They tweeted back and said, we are ready to worship. And, oh, my God, that just set like the entire Christian social sphere um, in outrage. And then the performance as well. You know, Sam Smith, um, they did a, you know, they did this uh this rendition and just really hammed it up. And so Christian outrage ensued and it was, you know, it was funny because this and the revival, which I'm going to talk about in just a moment, both of these events, um, the reason I'm bringing them up is because they both created outrage slash criticism from progressives and conservatives alike, which I thought was pretty interesting. I think that was something worth taking note of. Now, there was a subtext to the outrage of the Grammys, and the subtext to Christian outrage at the Grammys was that uh, a gospel group named um, uh, Maverick City Music. Maverick City Music performed a, a, uh, a song with this rapper named Quavo, and they were memorializing this rapper named Takeoff. And I don't know any of these people, but... They were memorializing him. They sang a song about him, and this also created outrage. People already have issues with Maverick City Music because they're a little secular. They serve alcohol at their concerts, and conservative Christians just, you know, they lose their bananas over this stuff. But the scandal, the scandal of the Grammys was that they sang this song on stage with Quavo, and the lyrics indicated that they would see rapper Takeoff again in heaven and there's no way rapper Takeoff is in heaven, or there's no way of us knowing that he's in heaven. And that was literally the scandal that some Christians were upset about uh, in this subtext. But it was not just that. There was also people who were upset that Maverick City Music shared the same stage as Sam Smith. Uh, they didn't feel like that they should share the stage with him. Uh, and then they sang lyrics, you know, indicating that they would be in heaven with Takeoff and Lord knows we can't put people in heaven that aren't supposed to be there. So that created all kinds of outrage. I saw outrage from uh, even progressives that had an issue with, with that. I'll talk about that in just a minute. The second big news story was uh, that Revival broke out at Asbury University. Asbury University, of course, named after um, the great Methodist Asbury, who was a revivalist. And... Um, you know, what happened was, and this has happened before Asbury. Back in 1970, they had a revival that broke out during a chapel service. It happened again. They had a chapel service. A young man shared his testimony. And then people just started to feel the presence of God. They started to feel free. They started to feel liberty and sharing their own stories and repenting and worshiping. And so then it turned into, um, you know, just an ongoing worship and prayer and pray service. And has been going on now for several days. People from all over the country have come out to it. Um, Fox News has talked about it. NBC's covered it. It's it's reached national news. This revival. It's a bunch of college students just singing praise songs and worshiping Jesus and saying prayers and praying for one another and you know all this kind of stuff. And it hasn't just stopped there. Like other college campuses have have came out to Asbury um, and and have traveled there. 
and it's happening also revival is, is popping up at other college campuses one of them is my alma mater lee university which is a church of god school shout out to them uh, that's where i earned my bachelor's degree in, in biblical studies um and now they're having a revival and you know it's very similar there's also a church here in charlotte that's experiencing a revival uh, you know just people really fired up for jesus worshiping praying really hungry for a move of the spirit experiencing god in ways they're you know claiming that they feel the tangible presence of god and you know there, there's the classic markers of revival in this asbury um uh experience there um you know there's prayer repentance there's even a video of, of them receiving an offering for a foreign exchange student that needed money from brazil People are reporting ecstatic states of consciousness. Uh, there's a lot of emotionalism, people crying, weeping, screaming. Um, you know, people claim that they feel the tangible manifest presence of the supernatural God. They're speaking in tongues. And yes, even at Asbury, from what I understand, obviously at university there is. We can't do anything in the Church of God without speaking in tongues. Um, and, you know, there's conversions, obviously, people coming to Christ. And then also people have reported kind of this this uh, this feeling of time being suspended, like when they're in the service, it feels timeless, the sense of timelessness. People leave and they've spent hours in there and it only felt like minutes. Um, but, they're, they're, you know, those are the kind of the characteristics of other revivals as well. That's not like new. But some of the things that are different about the revival at Asbury that I think are, are quite telling um distinctions to make note of is that the services really aren't personality led right like there's not a preacher or a big name or or a, or a personality there's no really no cult of personality going on these are just college kids you know there's really not even a preacher which is another mark of revival that's distinctive here you know other revivals have been marked by strong preaching or by some kind of preaching but here there's really isn't it's mostly singing and emotionalism and it's it's led kind of cooperatively mostly by young adults in fact the faculty at asbury have taken on more of a servant's role they're ushers and you know things like that they're just there to kind of facilitate the movement of students in and out uh, and the students and the campus ministry are really the ones that are leading um kind of leading the way there I think these are important distinctions to make. So I just want to stop here and just kind of kind of hone in on this. Most importantly to me, this distinction of a not being preaching is huge. So I'm going to get ahead of myself um, here because I, I really wanted to build up to talking about this, but I just want to go ahead and talk about it. So I read this article earlier today about a rabbi who used chat GPT, which is the AI uh, robot text creator that is all the rage now. Everybody's posting their chat GPT uh, prompts and results online, including me. I've done quite a few of them. I like sitting down and just talking to that to that computer. It's pretty cool. But this rabbi, and um, I can't remember the name right now, but this rabbi used chat GPT to create a sermon, and he told his synagogue audience I'm going to read a sermon to you today. I'm going to present a sermon to you today that is plagiarized. <laughs> like, I'm ripping this off, but I'm not going to tell you where it tripped off from. And I, I think the sermon was on, like, brotherly love or something like that. And the sermon was so fantastic that the audience applauded at the end. 
And this rabbi then told him it was created by a robot, uh, you know, AI. And in this article, the rabbi said that he was you know, kind of scared that that they that the preaching was good enough to get an applause and that and and that the danger was is that computers can't like chat GPT can't offer empathy. And I thought, man, that's that's something to think about, right? That the preaching can be good enough to meet the approval of the audience and not actually have any spirit behind it, no empathy behind it. And I've, I've seen conservatives complain about the fact that this revival doesn't have preaching. And I almost feel like that's the kind of revival we need because what we need less of in this world are bully pulpits and we need more empathy. We need less this is what I'm telling you and, and, and more, let us listen to what the spirit is saying. Let, let those of us who have ears hear what the spirit is saying. And that is what is happening as far as I can tell at these revivals that are popping up. I think that that is a huge distinction. That's important. I talked last week or not last week, but last episode in this podcast about how we need to not put pulpits where Jesus puts a table. And um, I feel like post the great deconstruction, post the Trump era, post pandemic church has got to find a way to be more table oriented and less pulpit oriented. Um, we've got to be more focused on a horizontal movement and not a vertical one. And um, that is what we're seeing in these revivals. So the, these events happened. And then in my own life, <laughs> my world's kind of had a, had a, had a my world, I had worlds collide in my life the past couple of weeks. Um, so first of all, the Sam Smith outrage, let me just go back to that. So the Sam Smith outrage, of course, brought up a lot of criticisms from the church. People felt like, you know, this was the demonic was on display that 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 Sam Smith was just basically taunting the church with their um, with their presentation of evil and 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 that kind of thing. Uh, and people were quite upset about it. You know, they were like, it's blatant. It's right in front of us, you know. And it's funny because I don't know. I don't get wrought up about these things because artists do shocking things all the time. I don't know. You know, people remember Ozzy biting the head of a bat off and Kiss doing their crazy antics. And, you know, like even Black Hole Sun when it came out when I was a teenager, the music video, people thought it was like making fun of Revelation or whatever. Um, so, yeah. And, but, you know, it wasn't just conservative Christians that were outraged about the Sam Smith incident. There were some progressive pastors who were upset about it. Um, and, and, you know, it's funny because these programs, not funny. I, I didn't find it surprising, but some of my audience would probably find it surprising because you have some presuppositions about progressive Christians, but a lot of the, or several of the progressive pastors I saw that were condemning the Sam Smith act were really bemoaning Sam Smith's foray into pornography in his last music video, more so than this Sam Smith in his last music video, he, did some pretty disgusting things that were pornographic in nature. 
Um, and you know, that, that came up, like a lot of people were bringing that up and that is what, you know, that is where their ire, uh, over Sam Smith comes from, you know, more than his devilish performance was his theatrics that, and they kind of saw that the devilish performance as sort of his, his almost kind of baiting the church, mocking the church, but not necessarily like a display of actual Satanism or demonic activity or whatever. They were just more concerned with his, um, his disgusting portrayals of, of sexuality. And of course, conservative Christians, they just had the typical knee jerk reactions to it. Right. <laughs> it's like, ah. so I went to, uh, okay. So, <laughs> um, this is going to surprise some of you. I went to the church of God prayer conference, uh, the, the, the couple of weeks, couple of weekends ago, my, my pastor who, um, has been very understanding of my journey and where I'm at. I told him I wanted to come out. I just felt like when I found out the church of God was doing their like winter annual prayer conference at my church, I just felt God kind of laid on my heart to go and I'm still processing it. And I'll probably share more of my experience on it when I'm ready to, but I definitely needed to go. Uh, I did uh, leave with some, I won't say closure, but I left with some things that were important to my journey. <laughs> but at any rate, um, at the prayer conference, the Sam Smith thing came up, and it came up right at the end, and, and the state overseer gets up, and he's in some kind of way because they had had an altar service that was very emotionally driven and, and whatnot. And... um God, I want to say more about that, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to shut up. But he gets up and he's like, you know, and and he, I haven't watched it. I'm not going to watch the devil's show on TV, but bless God, I've heard about it. And they're mocking the devil and Jesus and God and blah, you know, all this stuff. Like, And then, you know, it go, and then the state overseer, he's like the big guy in the state and he is a big guy. He's pretty tall. He's up on stage, and he's, he's pointing out, it's time we stand up against this. Stand up against this evil and this wickedness. And that was kind of the stance, right? It's just kind of this knee-jerk time for the church to stand up, rebuke the devil. I hear go headstrong into the culture wars with swords drawn. Um, but yeah, that, that's the way that they responded. And then you got the Asbury College thing, just coming back around to that, which also received criticism from all sides. You had conservative Christians saying, you know, there's no preaching. They're not. I literally heard that some Christians were upset they weren't using the King James Bible. Uh, some Christians were upset that they were speaking in tongues at a Methodist school. Other Christians were like, they're not speaking in tongues enough. You know, some Christians felt like it wasn't evangelistic enough. Um, and then you had the progressive critiques, which honestly, guys, I love you progressive people. Like I, I consider myself a progressive in many, many ways. Um, I'm beginning to think I'm probably considered a moderate by some of y'all. I don't know. I, this has been, it's been a hard week for me. I, it's been a hard week because I, I, I'm still not sure how I feel about the Asbury revival. I, I went to the church of God thing that left me feeling all kinds of ways, and then the way y'all are just acting about it all, like the way y'all are acting about Sam Smith and the way you're acting about this this revival, just got me feeling all, all sorts of way about you because a lot of the cynicism was from my my more progressive and moderate elite uh, pastor friends and colleagues. And, um, and you know, they were saying things like it's, it's a conservative school. We can't take it serious. It's just probably going to lead to more nationalism. Some were claiming it already was, that this was just a nationalistic thing. 
Um, people were saying that it's not leading to justice. They'd be better off to feed the hungry. You know, they'd be better off to, you know, give their money to foreign missions. Um, someone literally said, I saw that, that someone commented and said, this is just a great big pray the gay away meeting. And, and a lot of the ire from progressive Christians about the Asbury revival is that they, they feel very passionately and rightly so. I'm going to talk about this for a minute. So get ready, buckle your seatbelts, seriously, buckle your seatbelts. Cause I'm going to lay down some stuff that I haven't said yet. Um, but that particular stream of Christianity is is very passionate about seeing their gay brothers and sisters fully included, accepted, and celebrated in the church. And they're afraid that we will, by we, that the church will embrace a revival that just leads to more exclusion. And I just want to say, I think that of all out of all the critiques, that is one of the more valid ones. I don't feel like the cynicism is helpful. The people who are critical about it and they're because the jury is still out on, on how. How this might lead to inclusion. I would like to believe that it is going to lead to inclusion, and I want to talk about that for just a minute, because some of you are clutching your pearls right now. Um. But but a lot of people feel like this is one of the biggest hurdles facing contemporary Christianity, the, the full inclusion of queer people. I have already shared on this podcast that my life has been touched by many gay and Christian friends and colleagues. My life has been enriched. Um, I. I love and appreciate and have great friendship and relationship with many queer people inside and outside of the church. And I'm going to blow y'all's minds. I am friends with lots of gay people who are in your churches living secret lives Hiding their relationships because they're afraid to tell you. They sing on your worship teams. I'm going to sip my tea. It's not tea, it's coffee. They sing on your worship teams. They have been for decades. They do the flowers in your church. They teach your Sunday school classes. And they have for decades. Some of y'all know who they are. <laughs> but it's just don't ask, don't tell. Um... I I have been blessed, truly blessed over the past few years to be a safe haven for several LGBTQ folk who are in church and feel like they can cannot be their true selves because they'll be outcasted from their tribe. And this has not prevented them from being gay, just so you know. They are still gay. Uh, some of them have relationships. Some of them don't. Um, but it's still going down, right? Like, it's still happening. And we, and not we, but and the church, the church of God, the more conservative churches, 
continue to rail and rally, rail against gays and rally for an exclusive sort of faith, I have seen the psychological, long-term psychological effects of and damage that have been has been done to gay people who were forced to stay closeted for fear of losing their church community, their family, their Christian family and friends. And like I said, I know several still in the church, some in ministry. I was at the Church of God prayer conference. I saw at least a handful of them there. Um, they're there. And, you know, I have I had an experience several years ago at the Wild Goose Festival where I distinctly heard the spirit speak to me about the inclusion of of gay people. I was um, I was having a, a moment with God and there was there was a gay man who was in the crowd um, that evening, one of my first Wild Goose experiences. And I, I can't remember who the worship team was, but it was just this powerful moment that I was having with God. And, and this man reached out and just grabbed my hand and prayed with me. And I felt the spirit of God. Uh, this is not the only time that has happened. It's happened many times. Um, and like I said, many of your churches are blessed by the anointing on people in your congregation that are gay. And, uh, they've been part of the church for centuries. They've been part of the world for centuries. Uh, the gay has not been prayed away. Um, I know some gay people choose to be celibate and that is completely up to them. If that is their personal conviction and how they follow Jesus. But I don't think that it's something that we should continue to impose on gay people. I think the church can do better than that, that we can do better than don't ask, don't tell. We can do better than refusing marriage or romance to them as a way of sanctifying their natural sexual orientation um, or worse, using their talents, but not celebrating their personhood, which happens regularly in conservative churches. So I just want to go on record here and say that I, I think we need full acceptance, not just tolerance, but but celebration of our gay brothers and sisters full stop. Now, that doesn't mean the church can't continue to discover um discover ways in which we can promote the, the the sexual ethics of Christianity in our culture. And some of you will say, well, this has always been part of the traditional, uh, you know, Christian way of viewing sexuality is that it's just heteronormative. And I agree that is the traditional way it seems to be. But I just I, I don't see a way forward. And not only that, not only do I feel like it's expeditious for the church, I just feel like it's the right thing to do. I feel like it's the right thing to do because the spirit of God is in our gay brothers and sisters. They are filled with the spirit just as we are. Many of them are ministering under the anointing of the spirit and have been and will continue to do so whether we like it or not. And I just think that we can do better now that if you haven't turned the podcast off, I want to say some more things that I feel like some of you are still going to resonate with now that we're past that. So what is exciting me about Asbury is um, were the descriptions I was reading by those who attended. And, and please continue to listen because I think some of, the, some of the hindrance that we have in not wanting to accept people that are different than us as being full members of the community and the worshiping body of the church, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to address that a little bit as I close out this podcast with some of my final thoughts. So what excited me about the Asbury um, revival was 
you know, some of the reflections I read by Christian leaders that, that had went. And, you know, I've read this by Jason Vickers. Jason Vickers is a faculty member uh, at Asbury. You know, he said that he grew up going to revivals and camp meetings. I've seen people shout, run the aisles, and tightrope the backs of pews. I've seen that too. Um, I sometimes refer to this sort of thing as swinging from the chandeliers. That isn't what is taking place at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. I know because I just left Hughes Auditorium. When it comes to the manifestation of God's presence, I am no skeptic. Quite the contrary. I'm a straight-up believer that, across space and time, in the most unpredictable of ways, the holiness of God becomes palpable. The enveloping darkness atop Sinai, Isaiah's woe is me, the light engulfing St. Simeon in his study, and even the laughter in Toronto. Alas, at 2.30 this afternoon, I crossed Lexington Avenue and made my way up the stairs of Hughes Auditorium. Slipping into a seat on the back row, I wanted to see for myself what was happening. The following is a blow-by-blow account of what I experienced for the next hour and a half. I had been seated in the auditorium for less than 10 minutes when I came to, by which I mean to say when I suddenly found myself having conscious thoughts about my surroundings and what I was experiencing. The best way I know how to put this is to say it was as though in just a few short minutes I had completely zoned out. Upon the resumption of deliberative conscious thought, thought two things stood out to me. First, there was a notable la- noticeable lack of tension in my body. I was completely relaxed. There was also a complete lack of mental tension or distraction. My mind was at utter peace, and I had only been there for 10 minutes. The second thing I recall is that I could sit here in this chair forever, thinking that I could sit here in this chair forever. The desire to linger indefinitely was quite unexpected. I had planned to pop in for a few minutes before returning to work. Suddenly, work work was the farthest thing from my mind. I wound up staying for well over an hour. In the time that I was there, I could not get over certain distinctive qualities about the atmosphere. The words that came to mind were gentle, sweet, peaceful, serene, tender, and still. Some people were singing, others were talking, many were praying, but there was something like a blessed stillness permeating the place. No one was swinging from the chandeliers. In fact, it was right the opposite. What made this so wild was just how unwild the thing was and is. Okay. Um, So, yeah, so... You know, he goes on to talk about the university chapel seating 1,500. The church was filled, people waiting outside. Um, Craig Keener talked about, Craig Keener, a biblical scholar, professor at Asbury, he talked about how you could feel the tangible presence of God. Um, something that could not be manufactured was being felt there. And I get the cynicism, right? There's lots of reasons to be cynical. Um, and I used to be a cynic, but these days I'm fasting cynicism because fuck it. Like it doesn't do any good, right? Like being cynical, it's just a dead end road. Y'all, uh, Martin Luther King said that cynics can't be prophets. It's a quote I remembered from him that has always resonated with me. Cynics can't be prophets. Martin Luther King Jr. Also said, do not succumb to the disease of cynicism for it will justify all your worst instincts. And so I have decided I'm fasting cynicism. If you've been cynical about this revival, you've been muted on my social media because I don't have time for it. 
I already have a lot of feelings about it. I have a lot of opinions about it that I'm working through. Cynicism just is something I cannot bear. I cannot handle the utter suspicion of everything because it doesn't meet your ideology or your expectation. So, you know, should we be suspicious of emotional manipulation? Yes. Yes. God, yes. That's why I think Pentecostal pastors shouldn't be the less trained ministers in the, in the world. They should be the most trained because we, if we're going to be people open to the movement of the spirit and open to these sort of emotional experiences, manipulation is so easy to do in those settings. And we have to have a strong ethic about that. And we have to have strong boundaries around that. So, yeah, we should be suspicious of of emotional manipulation. We should have a healthy suspicion of it. But, y'all, not at the expense of discounting emotionalism. Not at the expense of discounting the spirit moving and you having a cathartic response to it in a group setting. You know, I heard people say, well, they're just playing music in the right key and the right rhythm. So what? So what? Humans have been doing that for centuries, right? We, we've used drums, we've used instruments, we've used keys. Um, you know, play the chord that pleased the Lord. Hallelujah, right? I mean, th- we've done this. We've used music as a way to, as a portal. We've used music as a portal to transcend our normal environment and to get into a place where we feel the divine. We've used ecstatic dance, tribe tribes, um, Christians, Pentecostals, chants even in, 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 in the church. We've used chanting, uh, and not just in Christianity, in, in Eastern religion and Middle Eastern religions. We, those are the type, like, what's wrong with that? I don't get it. When people say things like, well, they use a special court, who cares? I mean, maybe we should be more honest about it and say, hey, we're going to do some music that's going to make you feel a certain way, but that's the point. I don't, I don't understand why, why it matters. We need some magic in our world, y'all. We need some spiritual experiences. We need to make way and make space for people to feel God, to be touched by the divine. And, you know, we have used the magic of melodies and drum beats since the beginning of time as portals to transcendence. And, you know, maybe we need to do some more chanting and screaming and dancing and music and less preaching. Um you know, I, I, I just think we need to we need to be more honest about it, maybe, but I don't think we should stop it. And then there's, you know, there's the argument to be made about, well, what about the justice? Well, you know, are they going to are they going to give money to the poor? You know, if it, someone said if it's not revival, if it stays in the first world. And I just want to like, I don't I challenge that. I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, maybe we maybe we demand too much. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I do want to see acts of justice. You know, the book of Amos lets us know that God is more concerned with acts of justice than he is acts of worship. But I don't think that that means that we should somehow discount people's spiritual mystical experiences because they haven't got out and given an offering to a missionary yet or or sent money to the poor or sold everything they had and given it away. Um, I just don't know, like, is that a true statement that it has to immediately turn into these acts of justice to be revival i just maybe maybe we have maybe we have we expect too much from what we're calling revival i mean is is it not enough for a group of people to have a mystical experience i mean is it not enough for our society to return to having mystical mystical experiences we've been under this sort of 
bane of postmodernism and post postmodernism and and you know untethered ourselves from nearly every institution that we used to be tethered to everything we're cynical about everything and we have reason to be don't get me wrong i'm not discounting the reasons but this is where we are and i just feel like what we need is a good dose of good dose of mysticism like let's let people get together and feel god um and see what it'll do for us you know um, you know, why can't revival be at one place and one school or one church or whatever? I mean, yeah, I think you can experience revival anywhere, but I also believe in sacred spaces and I believe in Sinai experiences and I believe in the train fill in the temple and I believe in, you know, the upper room. Like, you know, there there are these instances in which God picks out a place and just shows up, uh, picks out a group of people and just shows up. And I feel like a lot of the cynicism is just more like Jonah being upset that God's blessing people that we didn't want God to bless, you know, and I like even myself, I need daily renewals of my spiritual life. Like I, I need to feel God. I need to experience God. I need to be in touch with the divine. I mean, sometimes that's just what gets me through the work day. It's, it's not empowering me to go out and I don't know, be a missionary or something or open a soup kitchen. It's just, damn, I just need to get through the day y'all. And I just feel like these personal experiences with God is something we need to get back to. Like, it's great to have a very social, communal view of the gospel, and we should. I've emphasized this for the past several years. But I feel like there's been an overcorrection. We also need to have these personal experiences with God, and we need to have them in corporate settings and in personal settings. So I just want to end by saying this. Can we just stop creating obstacles for people to experience the divine? Can we stop cutting the ears off of people who have come to hear the Spirit? And I want to ask these questions. Like, what would it look like? What would it look like if the church gave up the tasks of determining who is sanctified enough to be filled with the Spirit? That was big in my movement. You couldn't be filled with the Spirit unless you were sanctified enough to be filled with the Spirit. What would it look like if the church gave up the task of determining who's in and who's out, who's saved and who's not, who's going to heaven and who's going to hell? What would it look like for the church to give up the task of parsing sin, which we've gotten so damn good at? It's ridiculous. What what would it look like if the church gave up the task of calling indoctrination discipleship? And instead took up the task of actual discipleship, which is not just learning Bible verses, but following the spirit of Jesus, which is a mystical experience. It cannot be done otherwise. What would it look like if the church gave up the task of expecting homogeny in belief and excluding anyone that did not believe every little thing like we say they're supposed to believe it? What if the church gave up the task of worshiping the Bible as the Word of God instead of Jesus as the Word of God? What if the church just made space for people to experience the divine presence of God? What if we, what if we loosen our grip on saying whose worship is acceptable and whose worship isn't? Uh, Matthew 21, and I'm trying to wrap up here. I know I'm coming up on an hour on this podcast, but I have a lot to say. <laughs> Matthew 21 tells the story of Jesus turning over the tables and casting out the money changers. And if you know the history of what was going on in the temple, there's all kinds of things happening here. But one of the things that was happening was this was in the uh, court of the Gentiles. And what would happen is when primarily not just this, but primarily 
when Gentile worshipers would come to the temple, they would bring their sheep or their goats or whatever, their pigeons for sacrifices. And the uh, the the people out in the in the marketplace would tell them your sacrifice is unacceptable. If you want to worship God, you need to buy one of our sheep. You need to buy one of our pigeons, doves. You need to buy one of our goats, whatever it is. And they would take their animal, sell them an animal, take that animal around the back, bring it in and then resell it. It was a money racket. But in essence, what they were doing was is they were telling people whose worship was acceptable and whose wasn't and then profiting off of it. In Matthew 21, after Jesus cleanses the temple, I want you to listen to what happens. Jesus cleanses the temple. And then in verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the teachers of the law saw these wonderful things he did and the children singing in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So Jesus does away with this system of marketers, of profiteers, telling people whose worship is good enough and whose worship isn't. And once that happens, people are actually healed in the house of God and people actually worship Jesus. Children even worship Jesus in the house of God because God wanted to overthrow this system of us telling whose whose worship is worthy and whose worship isn't. Our cynicism about revival or our standing up against the music and the arts with our megaphones and our rules about who's in and who's out, these are all reasons why I left the church. And if the church has any chance of continuing to captivate the imagination of the world beyond these revivals, it must do these things, in my opinion. It must change the priority of the table and the pulpit. I'm not saying get rid of the pulpit, but the priorities need to change. For centuries, especially the evangelical church, we have existed as a church that elevates the pulpit and decentralizes the table. That has to change. The future of the church is table, not pulpit. If the church has any chance of continuing to captivate the imagination of the world beyond these revivals, it must change the priority of the table and the pulpit. It must be intentional about discipleship that is not focused on biblical literacy or ideological worldviews, but on recognizing and following the Spirit of Christ and doing good works that lead to peace and justice. They must be open to a robust and mystical spirituality that welcomes emotionalism, but also transcends emotionalism. And finally, we must be open to the possibility that our constructions of God have become idols. Carl Barth said that prophets live in constant tension because there's always the chance that they have to deconstruct their constructions of God because those constructions of God become idols. So having that Bart quote in mind, let me restate this one. Be open to the possibility that our constructions of God have become idols, including the constructs that exclude queer people who want to love, worship, and follow Jesus with their brothers and sisters in Christ. That's all I've got to say on the matter. Until next time.